invite you to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. Our annual all-night prayer vigil was held here at the church building Friday evening and into the morning hours of Saturday. Over a ten-hour period, we sought to bathe in prayer every scheduled event for 2009, every ministry of Eden Baptist Church, and every person who identifies with this body of Christ. We prayed along a number of lines for the success of the gospel and for its spread to all nations. Our motivation in this, perhaps there's just two ultimately when it comes to prayer, a church can gather for prayer in meaningless self-seeking ritual. Or if it is a rightly gathered meeting, she gathers to actively participate as a community of believers in the work God intends to accomplish in this world for His glory and for our joy. Of such authentic prayer, 4th century Bishop John Chrysostom rightly said, He who prays puts his hand on the tiller of the universe. The tiller or the rudder of the universe. Let's picture it this way. Go back a couple of centuries and picture a, a grand ship and the sea captain decides that he's going on this next journey to bring his young son along. The father brings the son up on the deck and he puts a firm hand on the helm of the ship as he steers it. He wants his boy there with him and he has the boy stand in front of him between his feet. In that father's strong hands is the ship and all of its direction. But the boy also puts his hand to that wheel. And he grabs on and he senses in his fingers in his hand, that though he is not ultimately directing the ship, there is a sense that he is exerting effective energy in the same direction. He's not trying to steer the ship against where his father wants to take it, but he stands there right with him and he exerts energy in the right direction. In like manner, it is our joy as God's little children to partner through prayer with our Father as He steers the course of history. We don't steer the course of history, but we partner with the One who does. It's at this point that some of our struggles enter in in prayer. One of our struggles is that we do not often know the direction our Father wishes to steer the course of history. There's many things He's not told us. And even when we do, the contrary winds of, and turbulent seas of everyday life distract our attention, don't they? Our prayer life is frustrated by not knowing immediately what God desires in a particular situation and by the trials of life that distract us from what He has revealed about His grand redemptive purposes. Our response then is rather than rejoicing to partner in the purposes of God through prayer, we obsess over that which God has not revealed. And we beg Him in prayer to fix this relationship and to answer this financial concern and to deal with this problem in our lives. He's not said a word about Him. We don't really know what He wants. That's where our prayers get locked in. And secondly, we fixate on the howling winds of localized personal trials and concerns. God has spoken to us about the future. He's given His promises and His Word, but we get centered in 
on the issues that cause us trial and difficulty. And the result is that we lose sight of what God has told us about His grand redemptive plan. And thus we squander the joy of grasping hold of the rudder of the universe in partnership with Him. And our prayers dissipate into all kinds of requests about things we don't know and all kinds of obsession with small matters. So it's my purpose to persuade you, to encourage us as born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as citizens of His kingdom, to put our hand on the rudder of the universe in partnership with God by pursuing a prayer life that focuses on the grand strategy of Jesus' reign over all nations. As we develop the biblical moorings of this proposition, I'd like to go back to Acts chapter 4. We're in a series of sermons through this book. And with expository preaching, one of the beauties is that it takes the biblical material as it is written and it labors to understand the author's meaning in the context of that book. But occasionally, I think it is fruitful to pull at a single thread in the fabric of Scripture, to tease out and to put on display a theme that runs through the Bible. And in light of our prayer emphasis this uh, weekend, I'd, I'd like to do that. I'd like to grasp this thread here in the middle of it, so to speak, in Acts chapter 4. In the second half of Acts chapter 4, we find the infant church gathered for prayer. As we are working our way through this book, this is, I think, a good place to start but it will take us back in time in just a moment. But let's go back and remember in this prayer, Peter and John have been warned by the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of 71 of the elders, the most powerful men in Israel, never to speak again in the name of Christ. Remember in their prayer 23 of chapter 4, verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Vital phrase. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, all belongs to Him, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, which we often translate His Christ, His anointed one. Now, the disciples, as we know, are in a heap of trouble. Jesus, their Lord, their Master, their Savior, has said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel in my name. Make disciples, followers of me, among all nations of the world. On the other hand is this great Sanhedrin, these powerful men who say what? Never speak in the name of Jesus Christ again. And they're going to go on living in Jerusalem. This is a problem. And what kind of prayer would that shake out of your soul? I think it would certainly encourage us to pray a prayer of lamentation. Why us, O oh Lord? We were trying to be faithful to our mission and we are suffering this injustice. Why us? 
Or maybe a prayer of deliverance. God, deliver us from our oppressors. Or maybe a prayer of imprecation. God, judge these opponents of Your Gospel. And I think on some level we could say that all of those would be legitimate prayers. We have examples in the Psalms of each of these kinds of prayers. Lamentation, deliverance, imprecation. But notice how they pray. They appeal to Psalm 2. And reading it messianically, that is reading it as pointing to Jesus Christ, the apostles link up with the biblical theme of Gentile rulers raging together against God's grand purposes. It says here that the Gentiles rage. The Greek word could be translated snort, to act arrogantly, haughtily, insolently. That's how the Sanhedrin has been treating Peter and John. They are raging against Peter and John. But these apostles understand that these men have been raging against Christ. And they pray this way. They realize that the resistance that they have experienced is ultimately insolence against the Lord, against the Anointed One, against God's King. The Jewish rulers were plotting in vain. They were bearing their chests against the speeding locomotive of God's sovereign purposes in Christ. Verse 27, they continue, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. That's the anointed one. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now this is what I'd like us to grasp here. We're not developing again this passage as we have earlier, but to grasp at this thread. They first set their prayer in the macro-redemptive context of the long-enduring assault of this world's rulers raging against God's purposes. Then they narrow in on specific requests pertaining to the micro-situation at hand. And that follows in the verses to come, verse 29 and following. Now, As we look at this prayer, we must say, of course, that it's a unique context. We're dealing with outright persecution. These individuals have indeed even heard Jesus Himself commission them to go into all the world. So it is something of a unique situation. But I do believe there's a principle for all kinds of prayer among God's people here. When faced by trials, our prayers should first set those trials in the larger context of God's revealed, grand, redemptive purposes before we begin to formulate petitions about lesser matters that God has not revealed. Recognizing from Scripture that they were players in a grand spiritual battle, the apostles grasped the rudder of God's sovereign purposes and that properly tempered their prayers. And it really oriented the way that they looked at life. It comes to mind the, I just think of the trials that we bore as a couple uh, for a number of years in our married life, not knowing if God would ever grant us children, not being able to have children. As you're praying about that, how do you pray? You don't know what God thinks. You don't know if He's ever going to give you children or not. You can't pray, God, give us children, because we know that's what you want and we know that's what you'll do. We don't know. No idea if He'll do that or not. But I can say by experience in that trial, linking in that difficulty with the grand sovereign will of God and purposes and suffering, 
tempers all of it. It gives us stability and strength to see our trials not as the end of all things, but as a small piece of the grander purposes of God. I think of some of the trials that I suffer now in wanting people to change and difficulties that are close to my heart and matters that I have to deal with, as you all do. If we get locked into the things that people won't do and we get locked into the disappointments of life and we, we begin to be overwhelmed by the trials of our families and the difficulties that we face in, in the suffering of life, we become encompassed by the small focus of things that we don't know how they'll turn out. But what we see here, I think, is a good example of locking into the greater purposes of God and joining with that plan. God at the helm of the ship is taking the ship somewhere. And He is not telling us when this storm's going to end or when this gale force wind is going to cease, but what He is telling us is, I know where I'm taking the ship. We need to get our hand on the rudder and it will put all else into perspective. It won't take the pain away, but it will put it all into perspective and allow us to stand on our feet with our Father and a hand on the tiller of the universe. Now let's start there. At this point it might be a little bit muddy, a little bit murky, but what I'd like to do, and I want to appeal to you, this is going to be a fairly extensive thought line that we're going to chase here for a little bit. As we do that... Don't give up. Don't get lost. It's like turning little lights on. And I hope by the end the light's shining brightly. Uh, by the grace of God and because of the teaching of the Spirit, I trust that'll be the case. But just keep working with me through this as we start to yank on this thread. Let's start in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 26. Genesis 4 and verse 26. This seemingly extraneous, off-the-cuff comment is actually integral to the unfolding of a key theme in the book of Genesis. That off-the-cup, almost extraneous comment is found in the latter part of Genesis 4.26 where we read, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now it seems to have utterly nothing to do with anything going on. But in Genesis 4 and 5, it really is a hinge pin on which a lot of things hang. The meaning is not, this is the first time that anyone prayed. I think we would have evidence of the first family worshiping and be able to say that there was prayer. Adam and Eve walked with God, and while it might not be prayer in a closet with your hands folded, it's certainly talking to God. It's not the first time anybody called on the name of the Lord. It's not the first time anyone called on the name of the Lord. Some have argued that way. But I think in chapter 4 and verse 1 we find Eve speaking about this, using the same name of the Lord and saying that from Him has come help, we would assume that she's prayed to the Lord for this help. What is the meaning? I think in the context we find these two great offsprings of people. The people of God, represented by Abel and then by Seth, who replaces him, and the people of the serpent, Cain's offspring. These two people are clashing here in Genesis 4 and 5 and will clash to the end of human history. At this stage in human history, the people of God begin to gather together in a marked way in order to pray together. I believe prayer has been offered to the, to the Lord in the past. But now they are gathering together as the people of God to seek God's will, to pray to Him. Just hold on to that thought and let's go to Genesis 12. 
In Genesis 12, we have that vital text from which so much of the Bible emerges. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, the calling of Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice that phrase at the end. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here's God's macro plan. He's not going to tell Abram that his father's going to die in Haran or where he's going or how that land of Israel's going to work out and how things are going to go there. What should happen when there's a plague? Should you go down to Egypt or not? God's not going to reveal everything to Abram about his life. But He gives him the big plan. Through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. In His sovereign electing grace, linking it back to Genesis 4, God chooses Abram as the father of the Messianic line. It will be through you that this one prophesied to crush Satan's head will come. Through the offspring of Abraham, God will bless all families of the earth. This is an astonishing promise, isn't it? This man, his wife is barren. This man will never own land beyond a burial plot. This man will never become a king or ruler of anything outside of his household. Yet God stresses, Abram, through you, all families of the globe will be blessed. We know how this is realized And if there's any confusion on it, Galatians 3, 13 and 14 puts that to rest where Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the nations. Through Christ, the blessing of God will come to the nations. So very early in human history, God reveals that all nations will be blessed through Abraham, which is pointing to Jesus Christ and His redemptive grace. It is most fitting then that we find a reference to prayer in this context. Verse 8, From there he moved to the hill of country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. I don't think that's a mistake. It's not thrown in there any differently than in chapter 4 and verse 26. This calling on the name of the Lord, a seeking of God to bring about His purposes. There is a lot that Abraham does not know about the will of God. But he does know now that all families of the earth will be blessed through him. What he does know, according to Genesis 3.15, is that there will be a single male representative of the godly line which will crush Satan's head. And Abraham prays. What we find in this theme as we begin to tease it out is the praying people of God. There is no sense in the Bible anywhere that I can ever see that any believer takes what God has revealed and says, well, we know that's going to happen. We'll leave that go till He gets it done. There's none of that. 
It is always that the people of God pray that God would do what God has said. In the mouth of a critic and in the mouth of a fool, someone could say, that makes no sense. Actually, prayer is doubt. God has said He would do it. Why pray about it unless you doubt it? But that is not what God teaches us as our Father. He says, I have promised it. It will be and my people will pray that it comes about. We find the theme of the grand divine plan to bless all nations through Christ. So God has chosen the family of Abraham as His own special possession through whom He will work out His saving purposes. But listen, God's redemptive plan is clearly global in nature, isn't it? It's not just Abraham's family that's in view. It's all of the nations. Encompassing all, this theme can be picked up then like a thread through the rest of the Old Testament. And for sake of time, I'll just go to one example, and that is Psalm 67, if you turn there. Psalm 67. The appeal of this song is to the God of redemption who is able to remove the effects of sin's curse. Psalm 67 gives us an evidence of this sense of God's grand purposes to bless all nations. In Psalm 67, we read, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. I'll tell you, that can be a very easy verse to dismiss. To just, just a throwaway verse. May God be nice to us. Okay, let's go on. What's verse 2? Listen, read in bold letters. Bless us. May God bless us. The appeal of this song is to the God who reverses the curse. Notice how the psalm continues. This is not a micro-prayer that fo- that that's focused on God fixing the trials of the psalmist's life. It is a macro-prayer that is decidedly global in its orientation and it synchronizes with Genesis chapter 12. God bless us. How does that happen, verse 2? That your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. Bless us, Israel. Bless us by making your your saving power known among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon earth. This is not a prayer to merely bless the psalmist. As I said, it is a grandiose, earth-encompassing prayer that God's intention to bless all nations through Abraham would be realized. This blessing, the psalmist believes, flows from God's saving power, verse 2, and His role as righteous judge and counselor of all the nations. Now, there's some implications to that, isn't there? We've got to think beyond the walls of this congregating place and think to our world. There's some serious implications here. There is only one God and He is the judge and the counselor of all peoples. I wonder if we really believe this. Do you believe this to the core of your being? That there is one God through whom all nations, in whom all nations start to find their joy and all nations are to praise His name. Do we really believe this? How should, how eventually will the nations respond to this truth that there is this one God who is judge and counselor of all? 
Verse 3, it is their praise. Verse 4, it is their joy in God. But let me ask you, how do the nations respond today? Is it praise for the true God? Is it joy in God? Is it seeing the anointed one that God has given and rejoicing? No. What is it? It's Psalm 2, isn't it? Let's go back there and think about it in this context. May all the nations praise You, O Lord. May all find their joy in You, the one true and living God. But what we find in reality now, Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice the emphasis on the nations, the emphasis on the rulers, the emphasis on the anointed of the Lord. There's a conflict here between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the king. Does this raging rebellion succeed? They rage against the Christ. But, verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God laughs at such folly. God mocks the vain attempt to reject His power. But then that mockery turns to rage. Verse 5, Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. The King against which they're raging, saying, No, we don't want His authority. We don't want His rule. God says, I've set My King on My holy hill. I think that certainly refers to the Israeli King. But there is an ultimate prophetic pointer here. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Speaking of the Sonship of Christ. Not in time, but in relationship. Ask of Me. Now notice this. See what verse 8 says. And I will make the nations your heritage. Those nations that rage against the Christ, I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth will be your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, here's the warning to the kings, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord. You're a king, you rule. You don't serve. But with this king, with the Lord's anointed, you are to serve Him with fear and to rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Get down on your knees, kings, and kiss the feet of God's anointed. Lest He be angry. And you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. What will happen to those who resist God's King? He will dash them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces. Verse 9, what will happen in those nations who submit to God's King, who bless the Son in homage? They will be blessed. What do you read there? Genesis 12. The nations will be blessed as they submit to the King. In this vision of Messiah's rule, it is a vision of Messiah ruling in justice and with wisdom over the nations of the earth, 
We ask, though, is this a vision that is merely potential? Or is this a vision that is prophetic? The prophets of Israel, we'll not read through them all here, obviously, but the prophets of Israel, as you read through what the prophets say, they are repeating over and over again that this is promise. This is the design of God. This will happen. Christ will reign. All nations will submit to Him and find their joy in Him. Let me give just one example, and that's the last prophet that we have in the Old Testament, Malachi, just as we enter into the just before we enter into the New Testament, Malachi chapter one. Malachi chapter one, just in case someone is not thinking straight. Let me establish something here first before we read Malachi 1. Let it be known that in this sense that this verse will reveal, in the sense that this verse has in mind, the name of the Lord of hosts is not great among the nations at present. Christ is not honored in this world. He does reign He is the king on the throne of the universe, but he is not honored so in this world. But we read in Malachi 1.11, this prophecy in the midst of a very different discussion, but kind of this sideline summarizes the point for us. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Most nations defy the Lord and worship false gods today. In other nations, large segments of self-proclaimed Christians equally defy the God that they claim to worship. But God promises that the light is going to dawn. There will be a day when His name will be great among the nations. As He promised through the prophet Isaiah, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon His shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government, hear it, and of the peace, there will be no end. The prophets stand up in unison and say, this Christ will reign over all nations. Now we go back to Acts 4 as we progress through. This is where the apostles are in their prayers. Christ will reign. The nations will rage. We are here in this battle representing the purposes of God and they gather for prayer around those purposes. Now in the praying of God's people, we find further instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In fact, a specific line of instruction concerning prayer as the people of God. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, writes the Apostle, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. God is calling His church to be a household of prayer. For whom? Look at verse 2. This is not a mistake. He's not just, oh, let me think here, I can come up with some example. For kings. 
and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. There is a practical result for such prayers as we relate to the culture around us, a submission to the rulers that are there. But this emphasis on the kings who rule the nations, I think, is, is needful and important. God wants all people to be saved. And He will not rest until that day when all nations on the planet at that time reverence the name of Jesus. There will be a day when all are saved who are on the planet at that time. And to this end, Paul labors, again, I don't think it's meaningless, as a teacher of the Gentiles. He is a teacher of the nations calling churches to pray for the rulers of the world that Christ may reign. Now let's move to the end of the matter. Revelation 11. Book of Revelation, chapter 11. We are in the midst of the great tribulation. And what's going on when it comes to the rule of the earth at this point in the book of Revelation? The rulers of the earth are Satan and the beast and the false prophet. But we read in Revelation 11 and verse 15 that everything is going to change. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, His anointed one, and He shall reign forever and ever. Here's these themes again. The kingdoms of the world, our Lord, the anointed one. And the 24 elders who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, the one true Creator God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but Your wrath came. There's Psalm 2, isn't it? The nations rage, but Your wrath has come. First He laughs, then He judges. And the time for the dead to be judged for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The nations rage, but now the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of Jesus, and He will reign forever and ever. This victory of Christ is not realized here in this chapter, not until chapter 20, but it's seen here as an accomplished thing. The chapters that follow detail the judgment of Christ upon His enemies. And then we come to the end in Revelation 21. The millennial kingdom of Jesus is turned over to the Father and the renewed heavens and earth are now in place. The heavenly city, Jerusalem, descends from heaven, settles on earth. We come to Revelation 21 and verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it until moons wax and wane no more. No more need. For sun or moon. Why? For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Now look at this. By its light, who is the light? The light is the Lamb. By the light of the Lamb will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. 
Here the grand cosmic purpose of God is realized where all of the nations of the earth are walking in the light and the joy of God's universal reign through His anointed one, Jesus Christ. I I hope your soul is not so dead as to be unaffected by this promise and these truths. This is glorious truth. To know what God is doing as He steers the helm of the universe. But we've got to stop here for a moment and realize that this is a very counter-cultural message. It's the message of Scripture. You pull this thread out and the fabric falls apart, as would be true of many other threads. But this is a shot at pluralism and relativism, isn't it? All nations submitting to Jesus Christ? That's appalling in our world. Those are fighting words in this world to say that every nation on earth will find its joy and its praise in Christ. I talked this week to a liberal Christian pastor who told me that the only person a Christian can warn about going to hell is another Christian. It's really a smoke and mirror statement because he does not believe that any Christian is going to hell. The reality is then that the only people that you can warn about going to hell are those who aren't. And those who are going to hell, you're not allowed to warn them. This is a Christian pastor. But I say it's a smoke and mirrors issue because his perspective is that it's all about perspective. If you don't perceive there is a hell, there isn't one. And if you don't perceive that Jesus is Lord, He's not. It's all a matter of your perception in this pluralistic world. Well, there is a hell. And there is a Christ. And that is the perspective of the Creator of the universe and the Giver of divine revelation. That is the perspective of the One who will one day judge the living and the dead And as far as I'm concerned, that's the only perspective that matters. The idea is that in our perspectives, we define reality for the universe. But God, the Creator of the universe, says, my perspective is that to which you must conform. And hear the words of Jesus in this vein. Matthew 28:18 All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. So, go into all nations of the world and make disciples, not into those who tend to share your perspective about who Jesus might or might not be, but into all nations of the earth because there is only one God, there is only one anointed one, there will be one King who rules and brings joy and praise to all. We cannot hold this truth dear 
and believe that we live in a world where people can define their own reality and choose their own kings, that is a raging against the one Christ, and we cannot abide that. I wonder if we believe it. I wonder, do we have truly the sense that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords for all people? We must, if we're biblically minded. There is also in this consideration certainly a great challenge for us. And I apply this, I trust, personally and specifically to you. We need to add to our micro prayers, macro prayers. From microscopic prayers that center upon issues about which God has not spoken to the seismic implications of what He has revealed. I don't agree with a lot of what this person said. I won't even quote or mention who it is, but these are profound words. And I go at them from a very different perspective, but I can't write them any better. So I quote, hear it, intercession is spiritual defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised. Prayer. Our gatherings for prayer as God's people are spiritual defiance of what is. Nations raging against Christ. In the name of what God has promised. The rule of Christ over all nations for their blessing and joy. History, he says, belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. I don't think I'd put the spin on it that this author would put on that, but that's right, if taken properly. History belongs to those who pray, who believe the future into being. And I ask in light of that, does the future belong to us? Does the future belong to Eden Baptist Church? Do we have our hands on the rudder of the universe with God? Does this define you in your prayer life? Go back a number of centuries and see in your mind's eye a regal king walking down the hallway of his great palace. His brow is furrowed. He is to convene a delegation of dukes and kings to broker a peace for the entire region under his authority, and there will be major challenges. He's optimistic, but this isn't going to be easy. This summit of these dukes and kings from the realms beyond are going to come into his great grand hall and they are going to meet and he is going to have to bring there all of his leadership skills and all of his rhetorical skills and he is sure that there will be a military campaign and some of it to bring it all about. He's very nervous. The future of the realm is at stake. There's so much good to be gained. There's so much evil to be suffered depending on on the outcome of this summit. Here is this king with all of this weight upon him. In his flowing robes and wearing his diadem, he walks pensively through the great hall, slowly thinking, meditating, knowing that soon they will begin to arrive and he will meet them there and he must win this. As he's walking down the hall there in the grand staircase is one of his daughters. 
And she calls out to him and says, Daddy, Daddy, I've got my dress stuck in the banister. Can you get it out for me? He's a good man. He doesn't ignore her. He doesn't just tell her to get lost. He doesn't yell at her. With all the weight of the world on his shoulders, he stops, he stoops, and he rescues her dress. And she thanks him. Thank you, Daddy. And she goes on playing, absolutely oblivious to the weight on his shoulders. He goes on. He loves her. Doesn't think any less of her. But he goes on down the hall, continuing on his march to the Grand Hall where all of this will take place. And he meets his older daughter, who's also yet very young. But she has tears in her eyes and she's sitting down on the floor and she says, Daddy, I fell and I hurt my knee. Will you kiss it? He begins to wonder if he's ever going to make it to the summit, but he says, of course he does. Bends down and he kisses her knee and she says, Daddy, thank you. And as he's beginning to walk away, she says, Oh, Daddy, thank you for kissing my knee. I know, I know what you're going to do today. And I think it's just grand. I love you, Daddy, and pray that all the delegates, the kings and the dukes who come, who come to the table today will honor your plan and that there will be peace. Now this king loves both of his daughters But when that difficult summit is over and the king emerges victorious, not only from the conference itself, but from the battles against those who oppose the plan, will there not be a special quality to the hug that he gives to this daughter who knew what he was doing? This daughter who wished him well in his efforts. Will he not pick her up and will there not be something special there? Not a lack of love for his younger daughter who didn't see any of it. No lack of love. But for this older daughter, some special connection. When all the kings have left and all the dukes have gone home and peace rules in the realm and he holds this girl close, And he buries his nose in her hair and to her ear he says, We did it. We did it. I wonder how it will be for us in eternity. I wonder which daughter we will be like. If you know Christ as your Savior and you have submitted to Him as your Lord and your King, We must all know that God wants to know all of our concerns. When we get stuck in the banister and when we scrape our knee, He wants to hear it all. As a loving Father, He opens His arms and He welcomes our micro-concerns because He is a Father that is bigger than we and He loves us infinitely. But I wonder how often we get so connected to the trials of our small lives that we lose the larger global purposes of what our God is doing. 
And I wonder as we go to heaven, will we gather there with all of our prayers coming with us in a sense and show that they were all micro prayers. Small concerns about God fixing my life, making things better for me, dealing with the issues of life that He's not revealed, or will our prayers be such that it will be clear that we had our hand on the rudder of the universe? If your prayers were recorded, would they all be lamentation? Would they all be imprecation? Would they all be prayers for deliverance about things God has not said? Or when we come into the presence of God, will it be possible for Him to embrace us and to say, we did it. May we as His followers learn to intercede in spiritual defiance of what is in the name of what God has promised, praying the future reign of Jesus into being and thereby putting everything else into perspective. Let's bow for prayer. Father, what folly our prayers often prove to be. How small our minds and weak our wills. How taken up with our own world, our own trials and problems. Forgive us, God, for the smallness of our prayers. I plead that you would deepen us and that we as a church would put our hand on the rudder of the universe. You're the one steering it. You're the one taking it forward. But God, may we rejoice to participate. I plead for anyone here that has not heeded the warnings to the kings of this earth that they'd realize what jeopardy they are in to rage against the authority of Christ, to find joy in any other God is blasphemous and evil and destructive. And I pray, God, that You would permit anyone who is in rebellion against Christ, maybe not even consciously, maybe who even claims the name of Christ, but who is living for themselves and thus raging against the authority of the Anointed One. I pray that You'd bring such a soul to repentance today. For those of us who are Your people, God, may we learn to labor with You in what You're doing. We do get caught up in the storm. We see the surf, its raging powers, and we feel the wind blowing against us. And it's difficult for us not to get obsessed with what is around us. God, I pray that we would not lose sight of reality in any way, but that we would handle the surf and the wind with confidence because we see that Your eyes are fixed on the future and Your hand is steady on the rudder. And God, may we put our hand to that helm and exert true energies in the right direction. All we can do now is pray this, but I ask God that You'll bring it about in our lives, that You will deepen us to see what this world is and what this world isn't and to labor with you for eternity.
Through Christ I pray. Amen.